Shalom, friends. Great to have you here with Rabbi Devin Maimon Villariel to talk about tikkun olam, repairing the world, repairing the world, and what insight we can learn from the Talmud and how this phrase tikkun olam is used and how that might inform our Jewish social justice work. And um, as Rabbi Devin uh, uh, hints at, what he's going to move us towards is how it tries to move us from using that term as a catch-all to having a sophisticated understanding of it that can help to guide us more deeply. Because if all it means is repair the world, but nothing specifically, where does that actually move us to? Let me tell you about our scholar today, if you don't know him. Rabbi Devin Maimon Villarreal has worked in Jewish education for over 10 years as a classroom teacher in both Orthodox and community day schools, during which he was awarded the Covenant Foundation's Pomegranate Prize for emerging Jewish educators. I was privileged to be there when he received that wonderful award. In his most recent past at De Toledo High School, he also serves as Jewish Studies Department Chair. Currently, he teaches as adjunct faculty at Hebrew Union College's DELET program for teachers and works as an education consultant for organizations such as the Sephardic Educational Center and the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. He's the author of the blog, thrivingtorah.com. I'll put that in the side so you can follow that, thrivingtorah.com which explores the wisdom at the intersection of Judaism, education, and everyday life. At the center of all of his work is his belief in Judaism's ability to help people discover and nourish their best, best selves. Rabbi Villariel, his wife and five children, recently re re relocated to Southeast Idaho. I didn't know that till I read your bio. Southeast Idaho, what a gift. Now when people say, who's the chief rabbi of Idaho, I can tell them. So, um, so friends, uh, you know, um, this is really great. Um, this is really great and really exciting to have this Torah and from this scholar. And in addition to his credentials as a, as a scholar and as an educator, really the significance of his menschlichkeit, his humility and clarity of values. And, and you'll see that in our learning today as well. So welcome, welcome all of you who are here with us. Um, we're thrilled to have you here, whether you're in the Zoom room or you're listening to recording. Rev. Devin, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much for that enthusiastic introduction, uh, Rev. Shmuley. It's so great to be back with you, actually. So for those of you that don't know, uh, Rev. Shmuley and I actually were in Yeshiva together. We overlapped for a number of years. Uh, and we were just before the recording began, just sharing some, some fond memories. Uh, so it's really great. I am just in such deep admiration of the work that you and all of you um, are doing. Um, Arizona Jews for Justice and the Valley Beat Midrash. Um, this is just such a deeply needed thing and I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to do some learning together with your community uh, today. Uh, those of you that are um, uh, in the Zoom room, um, if you're able to turn on your camera, great. There's no pressure at all. I just want to make that invitation that if you were kind of wondering, ah, should I turn my camera on, should I not? Uh, if you'd like to, please, I, I most most uh, invite that and welcome that. Uh, if it works better for you to have it off, then again, no pressure. It's just great to have everybody here and welcome to everybody that is beyond this virtual space uh, as well. Um, and we're going to start off actually just by kind of, you know, forming a Vida community. Ah, oh, Rabbi Green, great to see you. Um, uh, just by sort of just coming together um, just by you know sharing a little bit you know about sort of like the worlds that are represented in this room right as is the case with any room uh, with people and if people just want to take a moment to put into the chat something that 
uh, of significance that they want to dedicate this learning to right now, whether it's somebody's birthday or somebody who is in need of healing and you'd like to dedicate this session to a Rifu Ashalema for them, um, any significant event that you would just to like uh, to, to offer and put into the space as we begin, uh, let's take a minute to do that now. A lot happening, right, individually, on family levels, on global levels, um, and I appreciate people bringing that into this space. Uh, so we dedicate this learning to, to all of these things that uh, people are um, mentioning here. Uh, and it's an opportunity just to remember that when we come together to learn, we really are bringing together entire worlds, um, people with varieties of experiences, perspectives, ideas. Um, and that's something that is really important uh, as we engage and study together. Um, uh, we'll be sharing different ideas. I'm going to be asking people for contributions in the chat. Um, and so perhaps you'll see things that resonate with you, perhaps things that don't, uh, but to always keep in mind as we go through this, that these are coming from perspectives and worlds uh, and cares um, uh, of a variety of kinds. And so just to kind of hold that as we enter in this learning together. I want to start um, by kind of framing the question that we're exploring today, this idea of sort of what does tikkun olam mean? And in particular for this session, we're gonna be looking at how it's really uh, experienced in the Talmud, at least one particular um, slice of that. Um, and I just wanna look at that question for a moment of, you know, what does the Talmud mean when it says tikkun olam or what is tikkun olam? Um, I wanna sort of, again, identify what kind of question it is that we're asking. And to kind of help us, you know, think about that, I'm putting three questions into the chat. Um, they're going there now, so you can take a look at them. So these are about the preamble of the Constitution, right? Just as, as an example. Three question are, what is the first line of the preamble of the Constitution? That's, that's the first question. The second question is, what is the more perfect union in that first line of the preamble of the Constitution referring to? And lastly, the third question is, what is important to you? about the preamble of the Constitution. And again, just as a reminder, right, preamble of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure, secure, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Right, so let's just take a look at these three questions. And let's think about it for a second. And what is the difference between these three questions? And if you have an idea, please pop it in the chat or feel free to unmute yourself and share. Let's take a minute to think about that. What is the difference between these three questions about the preamble of the Constitution? I guess the question is, what is perfect? Great. So um, the second question really has a term that is, is an open term, right, in terms of defining, right? Like, how do we define perfect? Um, distinct from the first question, which is, what is the first line of the preamble of the Constitution? Like, that's right there, right? It, it, like, the first line is what it is. Second question is, you're raising perfect. That's open to discussion. What exactly perfect means? Great. Thank you for that, Suzanne. 
Um, and what about the third question? How is that different than the first two that come before it? Just any ideas that people have? I would say, what's more important, perfect or union? Great, right? And that actually is, is a, it, it, you, you raise something really important, which is, it's a very evaluative question. And actually that third question um, is, that's actually the, the type that it's called. It's called an evaluative question. So thank you for that. Um, so I wanna raise this because it's important in terms of preparing our minds as we engage in a question to be aware of what kind of question we're asking. Um, in education, there are so many different typologies of questions, um, but these are some that I find to be very helpful. And I'm gonna put this into the chat uh, just for people to see. But there are factual questions which are answered explicitly by facts contained in the text. There is one answer. There is one correct answer and it is explicitly stated in the text. There are also interpretive questions. Those have to be answered through analysis of multiple facts, drawing connections, context, experience. That's all necessary. And there are multiple correct answers. There are wrong answers too. It's not that there are no wrong, there are wrong answers, but there are multiple correct answers as it emerges from the facts of the text, the analyses, et cetera. Um, and finally, uh, we have evaluative questions. Those are entirely personal. It is about your experience. And so there are infinite answers and there is no right or wrong because ultimately it is about your experience, right? Um, and so I wanna point this out and I see this comment. Oh, Eric, great to see you, man. It's been a while. Uh, really good to see you. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, so just please also, uh, people should be checking out the comments in the chat as they add to the conversation. Um, you talk about covenant and binding of the whole people. Thank you. Um, and when I talk about this question today about tikkun olam and what does it mean, I want to be very clear that um, what I am talking about is an interpretive question. And that's important because one of the ways that the discussion of what is tikkun olam has fallen apart is that it sometimes gets treated as either a factual question or an evaluative question. That is either as having one explicit answer given definitively by a specific text, which it does not. And we see though this type of um, reaction coming from certain parts of the Jewish world though, where Tikkun Olam has one definitive explicitly given definition. But the truth is that's not the case. Or sometimes we find in different parts of the community, what is Tikkun Olam gets treated as an evaluative question in which it is defined solely by the person using it and the issues that they care about, which is not right either because texts do address it and that means something and it should mean something to us. And so today we will engage with exploring the question of what is tikkun olam or more specifically, how is tikkun olam understood by the Talmud as an interpretive question, which will require consulting and being responsible toward texts as well as our own analyses, sets of knowledge, and experiences. Particularly, we're going to take a look at this term and what it means in Talmudic text and its authoritative readers like Arambam Maimonides. And I will offer my own textually grounded response to this interpretive question of how is Tikkun Olam understood in the Talmud. And I invite you to consider that interpretation seriously 
as well as let it serve as a thought partner for your own interpretation based on the texts presented today and others you may be familiar with that I won't have the opportunity to address, or maybe a text you know about that actually I am not aware of. So to start though, let's take a moment and write down for yourself or conjure up in your mind your working definition of tikkun olam and what that definition is based on. And as we move through this text study, allow that to be in conversation with what we discuss today. Okay, so if anyone can just take a moment to do that, bring it forward in your mind or write it down. And uh, again, just have that be present as we move through this text study today. So I'm gonna give people a moment to do that. And then I'm gonna start sharing my screen to begin learning the sources together. Okay, without further ado, uh, we're going to jump into the sources. Suzanne, thank you for the comment in the chat. Um, there is definitely a difference in usage, and that's one of the things we're going to explore today. Um, in the Talmud, um, as you mentioned, actually, uh, it definitely carries that sense with it, um, and we'll kind of unpack that uh, and see what, what else we can discover. So, but thank you for framing that. Um, sort of, in some ways, that sort of like is uh, like the starting point of a conversation like this, right? That there is that difference uh, in usage. Okay, uh, I also, I'm gonna put into the chat now um, a link uh, to these sources. So if you would like to download them for yourself um, or if you would like to um, be looking along, uh, print them, et cetera, you can do that. I'm also gonna be sharing them on my screen, which I am going to do now. So we're gonna start off with the basics. Um, sort of the locus classicus, right? The sort of primary example uh, in terms of the place in the Talmud that Tikkun Olam uh, gets discussed. And that's found in the Mishnah in Masechet Gitin, um, where we are presented with a variety of enactment, enactments uh, that are motivated by Tikkun Olam. So let's just start there. And we're gonna start with perhaps the most famous example as well. All right, so we have from the Mishnah in Gitin, right? Hillel Tikkin Prosbol Mibne Tikkun Haolam. That Hillel right, instituted a document that prevents the sabbatical year from canceling an outstanding debt for the sake of Tikkun Olam. This document was called Prosbol. Um, and Rabbi Ovadim Ibertinoro explains that Hillel saw that people were prevented from making loans to one another and they violated what's written in the Torah itself, which says, Beware, lest you harbor. The base thought that the seventh year, right, when all debts are canceled, is coming. And so people stopped giving to each other because they didn't want their debt to be canceled and to lose money. And so really it was just putting people in a continually 
uh, challenging circumstance, a harder circumstance, particularly those that were in need of loans. And so Hillel ordained the prose bowl. Uh, and this is the body of the prose bowl. Um, the commentary explains, basically it was a document saying that I can still collect this debt. Uh, but again, in the end ends up being a better thing because people will continue to lend to people who need it. Um, so let's just, again, this is like, if you look in your textbook of like, Tikkun Olam, right, in, in the Talmud, this is going to be the first example you get. Um, what can we learn from it? So let's just go ahead and take a moment, and if people get in the chat or they feel, should feel free to unmute themselves, um, what, do we, what can we learn about Tikkun Olam just from this first example? My my first instinct is that it's saying that we we need to make sure that the structures that we create and the structures that we live by are actually serving the real lived needs and the real just uh, lived needs that people have. Right. Thank you for that, Eric. Beautifully said. Right. Like we create structures with uh, a certain need in mind, but then sometimes those structures actually start to work against those needs. Uh, and what we see here is this ability. Right um, of uh, of the of the sages to say, listen, we need to be able to be nimble. We need to be able to be responsive and enact new leg new legislation to make sure that the response to that need is still happening. Even by the way, when that means going up against the Torah law, which it does in this case, you're supposed to let loans, uh, you know. Um, be remitted, right? You're supposed to allow them to be go void, right? In that seventh year, but uh, if it's not going to end up serving the need, um, here we see a, a move from the rabbis um, to allow that need to continue to be served. Uh, so thank you for expressing that. Um, we also see in the chat, right, where it says uh, it seems to serve uh, as a way for society to function better. Right, great, right? Uh, you know, a similar point, right, but actually pointing out that it actually has a societal context, that we need society to be able to function in a certain way. It seems like this seems to want to help accomplish that, um, right? Ah, great, Sally, thank you for raising that point. It seems like you might have to violate a Torah law for tikkun olam, right? Uh, and it's an interesting question about sort of like whether it is like a direct violation or simply not doing uh, something you're supposed to do. Um, and there's a little bit of nuance there, but it is really quite remarkable though, regardless, right? That we would actually bypass a Torah law, right? In the name of, right, uh, sort of this value that we know kind of is, is motivating it. Um, great, and then Eddie, you have here like supporting the most vulnerable, right? And make sure the structures are actually supporting them. So I actually wanna just sort of like, hold on to that for a second, right? Uh, because we're gonna come back to that, right? So so thank you for expressing that. And I was gonna say one thing there. Yeah. When we talk about tikkun olam today, we normally mean, I think, the more radical pushing back against the more moderate. But what Chazal did here appears to be the more ma moderate pushing back on the more radical. The more radical is debt relief. Debt relief, cancel debt. And they said, actually, that's not going to work. We need to do something more moderate. So tikkun olam kind of, the rabbis are using it in the opposite way, you could suggest, right? 
Yeah, for sure. In, in, in this way, right, and this isn't, you know, always the case, but it's a great example where actually the Torah, even, you know, 3000 plus years ago was too revolutionary, right, you know, uh, you know, for, for the time even of the rabbis and actually even now, right, like, you know, um, so I think that that's, that's a great point. Um, so somebody asked, you know, what are the limits of bypassing Torah law for tikkun olam? Um, it's a great question, and it's actually sort of like a shiur unto itself. Um, and I would say that there's probably not a single answer to that. I, I would say that it's probably very case specific. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, looking at the sparseness, right, uh, of, of tikkun olam in the Talmud, it actually doesn't come up all that often. Um, I think it is sort of a, a tool that uh, there was some hesitation about, with good reason, right? You know, um, if we could just abrogate any law, right, in the name of, uh, you know, sort of what we felt was the ideal, right, that, that's also not a stable system. Um, so it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, thank you for raising those. So we're going to go, uh, because, you know, immediately the picture gets more complicated. Um, Prose bowl is given as an example because it's really pretty clear, right? Oh, wow, here we see the Torah clearly had a motivation for canceling debt, um, but it's not working and it's actually hurting people who need loans even more. So let's have a, an enactment, a rabbinic enactment that will address that. Um, but the cases that are given afterwards get much more uh, unsure about sort of what this is all about. Uh, at least as for us as readers. So let's take a look at the next examples. And then after this, actually, I'm going to ask for other people to read. So if you would like to do that, please, you should uh, uh, feel free to jump in. Um, but the next, in the very next Mishnayot in the same section, uh, we have in a case of one who sells his servant to Gentiles or even to a Jew outside of Eretz Yisrael, the servant is emancipated. Okay. The captives are not redeemed for more than their actual monetary value for the sake of tikkun ha'olam. And one may not aid captives in their attempt to escape from their captors for tikkun ha'olam. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, for the betterment of the captives, actually, that's why we don't help them escape, which is the commentary is kind of really spend a lot of time on trying to figure out what this is about. Uh, and the Torah scrolls, tefillin, right, phylacteries, mezuzot, are not purchased from Gentiles for more than their actual monetary value. For tikkun ha'olam. So what is tikkun ha'olam about here? What is motivating it? For improspul, it feels pretty clear, but we get to the next examples and already it feels less so. But can anybody extrapolate, even just from one example, what tikkun ha'olam might be about in these cases? seems like the general sense of fairness that, you know, we don't want to encourage, you know, justice and fairness. I mean, you don't want to encourage people to steal your servant to get lots of extra money and you don't want to pay more than something's worth. Yeah. So thank you for, for, for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, and it actually really seems like um, that is the common thread. There seems to be a common thread of there is a benefit in the immediate example, right, or in the immediate case, but there are unattended consequences, which overall are harmful. And so we want to prevent that. Uh, the commentaries, for example, I think, you know, the most illustrative example of this is with 
not helping captives, which for me, when I read that, it was, I found to be very shocking, right? Uh, I remember the first time reading that, you know, many years ago, being like, what is that about? Um, and the commentaries talk about, well, because actually as a result of that, uh, there are two perspectives, actually. Uh, one is that security around captives in general will become tighter, making it harder for captives to escape. And so that's the unintended uh, consequence, which we want to avoid. Or because when somebody escapes, it might be that the captives that remain suffer the consequences at the hands of the captors, right? Uh, they'll be treated more illy, right? God forbid they would be killed, etc. So it seems to be that there are these immediate cases that doing something positive in that moment has a larger unintended consequence, which uh, it wants to be avoided. The rabbis wanted to avoid that. And so they issue these mipne tikkun olam, right? So do these things or don't do things because they have unintended consequences, right? Which we need to prevent. And that's really all the Mishnah gives us. There, there are actually many more examples going into the next chapter of the Mishnah as well. But we start to get this feeling of like, okay, it's a rabbinic enactment, that much we know. Um, and two, it seems to be about thinking about how to preserve a larger structure of fairness and justice, um, even if that means that in the immediate moment act, right, um, not doing what feels like that. So there's something that happens. Um, for the most part, this is where popular discussion of tikkun olam ends, which is something that to me is very surprising because there's really an extraordinary move that happens in the Gemara. And by the way, you might hear my children running right now. So if, if you hear little kids yelling, that's what it is. Um, and it's really quite phenomenal what happens in the Gemara and doesn't often get talked about. But for me, um, and for this presentation, you're going to see, ends up being the pivot point about how Tikkun Olam is understood in the Talmud and by authoritative readers. So let's go ahead and take a look. And it all starts with one case in the Mishnah that flies in the face of all of the other cases. So if there's anybody that wouldn't mind reading just the Mishnah portion uh, of this next text of the evolution. Hi, I can read it. Um, Thank you. The court appraises land of superior quality, Edith, uh, for payment to injured parties for the sake of tikkun olam. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. So what happens is, is if I own something, you know, in many cases like this, it's an ox, right? These are the examples that we've given, and it does damage to your property, okay? Um, when I have to pay you back for that damage, if I am deemed responsible for that, I don't just pay you for that damage. The best part of my land is taken to pay you back for that damage. And it's called edit in... In, in the Pasuk, which we're going to see, it's very clear, but a person in this case has to pay from the best part of their land. Now, there is an extraordinary problem with this, which is the Mishnah is telling us that this is a law, which so far we've seen is A, a rabbinic enactment, and two, is supposed to avoid an unattended consequence. But this example completely flies in the face of both of those, because number one, the fact that you take from the best part of land to pay for damages is not a rabbinic enactment. It's an explicit commandment in the Torah. The Torah tells us this directly. And number two, it doesn't seem to have any unintended consequences that it's trying to address. And so the Talmud is stuck with this example that does not fit into any of the boxes than anything else does. 
And it's here, their response, that I believe we have a really phenomenal statement about tikkun olam. So let's see what it says. Um, and uh, Julie, would you mind reading just this next part up until uh, tikkun olam once more? Sure. Thank you. Um, from the Gemara, is this yes. ordinance for tikkun olam? Uh, this is by Torah law. As it is written we, with regard to one who damages another person's property, of the best of his own field and by the best of his own vineyard shall he pay, Exodus 22.4. The Mishnah is saying, what is the reason? That is, what is the reason that the court appraises land of superior quality for payment to the injured parties? This is for Tikuha Olam. Okay, great, thank you so much. And so what just happened here is that what we're being told is that actually Tikuha Olam is not a rabbinic enactment and nor is it to address unintended consequences. It is actually a motivation for Torah law itself. It is the reason why God gives specific commandments. God gives specific commandments, including this one, of having to pay for damages from the best of property because of tikkun ha'olam. And we have a baraita that sort of states this uh, in an illustrating way. It says, this is, it was taught in a baraita that Rabbi Shimon said, for what reason did the Torah say that the court appraises land of superior quality for payment to injured parties? It is due to the robbers and due to those who take that which is not theirs by force, the hamsanim. How so? So that a person will say, why should I rob and why should I take by force? Tomorrow the court will come down to my property and take my finest field in order to compensate the victim for what I have robbed or taken by force. And the sages rely on what is written in the Torah, of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard shall he pay. Consequently, it's said that the court appraises land of superior quality for payment to injured parties. And it is important to note that there's the, the Talmud, the printed edition that we have states this slightly differently, but the commentaries arrive in the same uh, place. I've provided the, the version that really states it clearly in the text itself. But here this Baraita, right, this rabbinic teaching from the time of the Mishnah says very clearly, why did the Torah give this commandment? In order to tikkun ha'olam, repair the world, which it defines here as preventing people who can take by force from doing so. So this is fascinating. We've gone from a rabbinic enactment to address unintended consequences to know actually this is the reason for specific commandments. And what is the reason described by Tikkun HaOlam? The reason is to prevent people who can take by using power or force to prevent them from doing so. Okay, so we're just going to pause right here. Does anybody have any thoughts or reflections or questions about this? It reminds me a bit of in the American legal system that if you harm someone, you legally might not only have to, um, you know, give them, um, you know, rehabilitate the, the the money that you that the, or the damage that you've done, but you also might have to pay some kind of punitive damages or compensatory damages on top of it, right? So you are you are you're suffering at a degree greater than that you have imposed on someone else, and and that's supposed to be a further disincentive to harming others. I did not realize that. Um, so that's really, really very interesting and, uh, and a great example 
right, of how an idea like this is translated into our own legal context. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very context specific. Sometimes it's the case, sometimes right. it might not be, but, but that principle applies. Yeah, absolutely right. I imagine with so much of this, right, it is like, all of the details of the case, right? You know, um, and what the picture does that yield? And then is that an appropriate uh, response to that case? Uh, but thank you for sharing that, did not know that. So again, we have this remarkable turn. And by the way, for those of you who, you, who maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but I talked about, you know, the basics and then the evolution, you know, so for those of you that like are into Pokemon, that's a definitely a Pokemon reference. I apologize, I'm a mid I was a middle school teacher. And once you're a middle school teacher, you're always a middle school teacher. Um, so, here we are with this remarkable thing. So you might say, okay, so, you know, the Gemara takes us in this direction, but it stops there, right? You know, that's really not how we talk about it. That's not how it's generally understood, except it is in some really fascinating ways. Um, so we're going to go now into uh, uh, some fascinating areas here, because once the Gemara opens this box and says, actually, Tikkun HaOlam is a motivation for certain Torah laws, then that opens the door for later readers to see that at work elsewhere, even when it isn't explicitly stated. So we're going to go ahead and read now another case from the Mishnah in Bava Metziah, uh, dealing once again with civil law. Um, and if, I, if there's another volunteer that wouldn't mind reading, um, somebody um, who, even if you have your camera off now, you're welcome to turn it on and read, uh, or otherwise, anybody who'd like to read this next one. I'll read it. Thank you. With regard to one who lends money to another and the debtor fails to repay it at the end of the term of the loan, the creditor may take collateral from him to ensure payment only by means of an agent of the court, not of his own accord. And he may not enter the debtor's house to take his collateral as it is stated, when you lend your neighbor any manner of loan, you shall not go into his house to take his collateral. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring forth the collateral to you outside. Thank you very much. And so we have this case where a permission is given to take collateral, but only when the court oversees that process, right, uh, for a loan that has not been repaid. Um, and that there are limits, though, to what can be done with that collateral. First of all, we know that um, from this Mishnah and from Sukim in the Torah, right, that actually if they were uh, pieces that were essential uh, to the owner, that you had to return those pieces of collateral. Um, to, so that way they could use it, right? They could, so that way they could stay warm at night if it was a piece of work equipment that they could use it during the day. Um, but also we see that the person who had lent the money could not just go into the house and take the collateral. They could not just do that. They had to be all done being overseen by a court. And so what we have here now is the Sefer Hachinuch, which is written in medieval Spain. And he's going to see, he's going to, um, as we'll see, he's going to also now take that Gemara, which opened up this door of seeing Tikkun Olam as a reason for certain mitzvot, and he's actually going to read it here. So he writes, uh, first of all, he just gives a, a, a overall overview of this commandment of not being able to just come in and take collateral. He quotes the Mishnah we just read, right? If one lends to his fellow, he may not take collateral except through the court. He may not enter his house to take it. You must remain outside. And he writes, it is from the roots of the commandments that it is that so people not be as if abandoned and violence increased in the land, that the big ones swallow up the small, the small one and take collateral from him by force without fear from him. And that the small one not be able to get his case against the big one from fear of his stature. 
And so the verse equalized them such that one not take collateral for his debt from his fellow, but rather that it all be done according to the law. And with this, will there be a betterment in the civilization of the world, tikkun yishuv ha'olam, as is the desire of its creator, that it be properly inhabited. So now what we see here, because the Gemara says, ultimately this is the reason for the commandments, specifically what is the reason, so that the powerful not be able to take away from the less powerful, right, by force, and the Sefer HaChinuch now sees that in other commandments. Why can a creditor not go in and just take their collateral? Because that is a case of the powerful who are able to take away from the less powerful. And that is something that we cannot allow. And so there is this law, Nibne Tikkun Yishuv HaOlam. He adds the word Yishuv. But it's this same idea of Tikkun HaOlam that is operative here. So now that we've come into this second example, uh, by the way, Eddie, I appreciate your comment. I'm just seeing it now. Glad you're here for the Pokemon. <laughs> uh, uh, what else do we learn from this example? There is there anything that just stands out to people though about this case and how the Sefer Hachinu sees uh, Tikkun HaOlam in it? Any any reflections on that, either in the chat or unmuting? Okay, I'm going to go on then for the sake of time. Um, but what we're seeing is also, what we're about to see is that the Sefer Chachinuch is actually not alone in this. He is not an outlier. Um, one of the greatest readers of the Talmud and codifiers, right, of its law in the Mishneh Torah is, of course, Harambam, Maimonides. Um, and he starts actually to do, well, he came before the Sefer Chachinuch, but he does something very similar. And the way that he does it actually leaves us, I think, with... Um, an additional insight. The Sefer HaChinuch showed us how the Gemara's reasoning can actually be applied to other mitzvot. It's not just that the Gemara was saying, it's this one mitzvah that was motivated by Tikkun HaOlam. Sefer HaChinuch says, no, actually other mitzvot are. He continues that tradition of the Gemara of seeing that as the reason. And finally, what we're going to see in, in Maimonides is an even larger expansion. So let's read together. First of all, the passage from the Gemara now in Masechet Sanhedrin, reads as follows. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani says that Rabbi Yonatan says, any judge who issues a true judgment to the utmost truth causes the divine presence, the Shekhinah, to rest among Israel. As it is stated, God stands in the congregation of God in the midst of the judges, God judges. And every judge who does not judge a judgment according to absolute truth causes the divine presence to withdraw from Israel. As it is stated, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, says the Lord. In other words, summarizing, God will arise and leave the people as a result of oppression. Maimonides reads this and paraphrase it, paraphrases it in a most intriguing way in his law code. He writes as follows. He literally quotes this passage we just read from the Gemara, every judge that issues a true judgment to its utmost truth, and then now he starts to add, for even one hour, it is as if that judge has repaired the entire world. Tiken et kol ha'olam kulo. Has engaged in tikkun ha'olam. And that is what causes the presence of God to dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. 
as it is written, and then he continues on. So Maimonides looks at this passage of the Gemara, which talks about how any judge that judges rightly and fairly causes the presence of God to dwell amongst the people of Israel, and specifically what allows God to dwell, the fact that that judge did tikkun olam, that when this judge does that, that is actually what allows God's presence to rest there. Uh, I want to keep an eye on time because I know I just have a little bit. So I just want to point out a couple of things. And lest we think Maimonides was, his, uh, was on his own about this, the tour, the great codifier after Maimonides, quotes him verbatim in this section here. Exact same language from Maimonides, but adds this preface, basing himself on um, Pirkei Avot in the last section of the first chapter. After the world was created, it is preserved through these things, justice, truth, and peace, that through judges that judge between people does the world continue, because were if not for the law, the powerful would conquer all others. And then he goes on to quote Maimonides. So it is the law that prevents the abuse of the powerful over those who are less powerful or those who are weak. And he adds that to Maimonides seeing that any judge who does that, who judges rightly and therefore prevents that, is engaging in tikkun ha'olam. I have another section here which just points to actually others have connected this tour and Maimonides together before. So I just wanted to have that be present for people uh, to notice that. And so we're in our sort of last couple of minutes, um, but I want to just um, sort of summarize sort of this journey thus far. Uh, so I'm going to stop sharing for a second um, and sort of see where, where have we landed. So following this line of thought, and there are others, again, this is an interpretive response. There are other texts we could look at that would paint, uh, a, or I should say highlight a different facet. But following this line of thought, which is a clear one, we arrive at the conclusion that tikkun olam as understood by the Talmud is two distinctly possible things. A legislative tool of the rabbis to prevent harmful unintended consequences. Harmful in the sense of working against the Torah's original intention. As well as, and perhaps more importantly, a core value which motivates the legislative force of the Torah itself. A core value which is the transformation of a world of oppression by the strong over the weak, into one of equality under the law. A motivation that when at the heart of a judge's, and I would argue others' actions, render those actions partnership with the divine and an allowance for the divine to rest among us. So how does this inform justice work? There are of course many kinds of essential justice initiatives to be involved with. I would argue that what we explore today puts a fine point though on one particular aspect of justice work, and that is advocacy for laws that address power inequalities. Specifically, power inequalities in which the stronger can take from the weaker without consequence. To my mind, that squarely lands in areas of labor, including issues of gender, rights to organize, collective bargaining, and other areas, including immigration as well. Understanding the importance of protection of the most weak or those that are in the most vulnerable provisions of society to protect, to protect them against those that could use their power to harm them or take from them without consequence. But there are, of course, other areas as well. 
what I put forward is what we use, like when we use terms like tzedek, tikkun olam, and chesed, we should do so with nuance and specificity. Doing so allows us to think with clarity about the various natures of the justice work that the Torah asks us to do and reflect about how we might most effectively do them. I'll conclude with a pasuk that was already referenced in the Gemara, and it's significant actually, that is uh, the minhag amongst Visafaradim, to recite the psalm that this pasuk is found in on the eve of Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, embodying perhaps what the culmination of the Torah is all about. The pasuk says, Mishod Ani'im Me'ankat Evionim Ata Akum Yomar Adonai, Ashit Bayesha Yafiach Lo. Because of the oppression of the poor, because of the groaning of the oppressed, now I will rise, saith the Lord. I will set them on the safety for which they yearn. And so in any justice work we take on, be it tikkun olam, tzedek, chesed, may we be able to say that we work to do the same. Thanks everybody for your time today. Yashikoah. to you. Yeah, thank you. Do I have time to make a comment? Yes. I was just thinking when you were talking about the unintended consequences um, that, uh, you know, one of the uh, interpretations of uh, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof is that the means have to be as ethical as the ends. And that kind of made me think about that. Absolutely. I'm thinking about Afghanistan. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. (sighs) Yes, there's a lot to think about Absolutely. Thank you. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and thank you for highlighting that that's this value of sort of anticipating and being responsive to unintended consequences is, is in a few different places, right, in our tradition. Thank you for that. I don't know if it, if I could jump in and, and the, there was that text um, in which the, the wealthy could use their economic power to withhold the pledge. Um, and the I put it in the chat. I know you were rushing, but it just strikes me as the opposite of what we've what we've got going on here. In which, you know, wow, what a shrewd business person they they built this empire, and if they built it on the backs of the poor, like, well, okay, that's how you have to do it. Um, but we've got a, a a set of Jewish values that says that that kind of wealth accumulation is uh, it, it's a destruction of the world and and it's a breaking of the world that requires a healing of the world um, and so you know when we talk you know you said it needs a specificity right Tikkun Olam like oh we're doing a you know we're picking up trash in the park which is like it's beautiful you know that does visually you know and maybe ecologically heal the world but this is a this is a very specific critique of a certain kind of exploitation economically and I think we should be clear about that yeah, thank you for expressing that, and I'm, and I'm seeing now in the chat, um, um, and I really appreciate the, the, those comments and what you raised, um, and I think that, you know, the way that you phrased it actually made me see something which I hadn't before, uh, which is also, you know, that very much um, what this helps us realize is that when the most vulnerable or the poor suffer, it actually isn't just the poor, it's a reflection of where our world is at, um, and if they are suffering and we are creating systems that enable that suffering, it's really the entire world that's broken. It's not just them that's suffering. And it's just sort of a matter of time until it reaches us in a way that we realize, but hopefully hopefully we are doing something about it long before then because of, of empathy. Well, it reaches us because it takes God out of the world. I mean, that's, that. you know, what else, What's you can think of a stronger way of putting it. 
God is like, okay, I'm out of here. You guys can't handle this. Okay, goodbye. You know, what a what a crisis. And, and, you know, I, I think that that's fantastic, uh, as beautifully said. Um, and I think the other thing, too, that comes up for me with this is um, to remember that sort of like the vulnerable are us as well, right? Um, I, I, you know, sort of, you know, if we're sitting in this room at this moment, we are probably not having to deal with some of these issues that are described, but we may have at some time or another or very much people who are close to us or that are in our communities. And sometimes we act as a community as if, right, it is something outside of us, but it's really not. Um, and even if it were, right, like as you're raising, it affects us uh, in profound ways, which we need to be sensitive to. Um, thank you for raising that. Can, can we get a, a link to these texts? These are very powerful. As a PDF um, or make a copy of it if you wanna to add to these sources for, you know, uh, for teaching that you wanna do or to share, please, by all means, uh, Torah belongs to everybody. Thank everybody for, for this learning together and also just got the chance to see a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time and also meet many wonderful uh, new people. So I'm uh, excited for that and thank you again. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. That, that was, that yeah, was this was excellent. Thank you. I love the Pokemon reference too, personally. <laughs> uh, uh, this was great. I, I, I love uh, Rev David and uh, Devin and Every time he just brings his amazing energy into all of his teachings and that it's, you just can't help but smile. Even though we were talking about the subjects that sometimes are hard to even think about, like our fandom, how are we supposed to smile when we're talking about this repair, the, uh, the need to act and stuff. But I think it's an important time to bring positive energy into the work that we're doing. Oftentimes when we're looking at this repair and when we're looking at the work, um, especially here, like whether it be on a collaboration with Uri Litsetic or uh, Arizona Jews for Justice, um, there's also a personal strain. And I really liked what you said when we you said we're also the ones that should, should need the support. You know, we're also part of that vulnerable community. And if you think about it, like that's how you can also step up and, and take care of your own mental health, take care of your own self to make sure you don't get burnout, um, to make sure that you're here continuing to fight. Um, so that was just that was just great. Um, alrighty, friends. Thank you, everybody. I think if, if uh, folks don't have any other uh, lasting comments, we will go ahead and uh, close our Zoom session. We appreciate each and every one of you who has joined us on the Zoom, watching us on our Facebook, and uh, we'll be listening to this later on. We appreciate your support. Have an amazing day.